The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, and a welcome to a special episode of the MJ Cast. Today's air date is August 29, 2015, and today marks a very important day in the annual Jackson's calendar, being Michael Jackson's birthday. I'm Q, and I'm here with a dear friend of the show, studio engineer Dan Vigilobos. Dan, how are you doing? Hey, Q. I'm uh, very well, thank you. Very happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Hidden in the background, we've also got Jamin. He's going to be our somewhat silent mission control. We've had some pretty major Skype issues today. So he's got the call recording and he's in the background. So, yeah, so Jamin is here. He's just being our mission control. Um, We thought that honouring Michael by bringing on one of his most decorated musical collaborators would be a fitting way to remember his life. Yes, Brad Sundberg first joined Michael Jackson's team during the production phase of Captain EO in 1985 and remained with Michael as one of his engineers and technical director for around 18 years. Brad was a key member involved in the studio production of four of Michael's studio albums, Bad, Dangerous, History, and Blood on the Dance Floor. Brad also worked on remixes and edits for countless singles, short films, tour preparations associated with these projects. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a bigger expert on Michael's artistic and technical world than Brad Sumberg. As Michael's gorgeous home Neverland Valley Ranch grew from dream to reality, he relied on Brad to design and install music and video systems all around the property, including Michael's personal listening and dance studio systems and outdoor sound systems. In this amazing new chapter of Brad's life and career, he is sharing these beautiful and unique experiences with the public through his In the Studio with MJ seminars. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the MJ Cast. Wow, that was quite an introduction. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Q. Thank you, Dan. Quite, quite deserved. <laughs> and and poor Jamin, our our silent uh, partner, somewhere in a dark room, <laughs> He's suffering away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. So, could, could you tell us a little about you, like about your, your your childhood, and was music a big factor when you were growing up in your uh, like younger years? That's a great question. Um, yeah, it was. Um, the funny thing, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I'm not a musician. Uh, my mom is an amazing musician. Uh, she's played uh, organ and piano in churches and for events her whole life up to this day. So I've got I've got music in me. Uh, I've got, I guess what you'd call a good ear, but I don't play. But I grew up with an absolute love of music everything from ABBA to Pink Floyd. Um, I, I wasn't a huge J5 fan. I mean, I'm five years younger than Michael. And I grew up, I mean, the, the Jackson 5 were there, but I was a little more a little more Van Halen, Def Leppard. I went a little more, was rock, was, was kind of the music that I really enjoyed. 
Awesome. You know, let, let me let me just add on to that just sure. one little bit. <clears throat> I will say that when I was in high school, um, Thriller came out, and I, I'm sure I'm quite a bit older than you guys. I'm not going to ask, but uh, you know, I, I was right at that that cool age of you know seeing the Thriller video on MTV, the world premiere. It it was huge. It was huger than huger than huge. And uh, and like a lot of people, I loved that album. And I played it, and back then it was vinyl, and I played it until, you know, it, it wore out. And there was a, a particular song on there, and you're, I hope you don't laugh at this, but a song called Lady in My Life that I didn't just listen to music, but I studied it. And I would study that mix and listen to it and listen to the reverb and listen to the drums and break it down in my head. And that was a huge that was a huge part of the reason why I moved to LA, why I got into music. And what I've only applied at one recording studio in my whole life, and that was Westlake, and that's because Thriller was recorded there. So even though I wasn't a crazy and don't be offended, but I wasn't a crazy Michael fan. I was a huge fan of the sound of his music and, and Bruce. And uh, so, you know, so the story started fairly young, but I was kind of introduced to Michael through his music when I was in high school, if that makes sense. Great song to get introduced to the, to the sort of technical side with Lady in My Life. It's a beautiful track. Yeah, that's, that's actually my favorite ballad. So it's, great that you mentioned that yeah I, I love that song yeah what were your perceptions of michael as an artist sort of as you did become aware of his work and and as him as an artist well i mean again back back then um the i believe it was the victory tour um was storming across the u.s and and even then i mean the 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 craziness that kind of surrounded you know the jackson world and you had to buy tickets in four packs and, and we, my back, you know, we, we tried, we, I actually tried to buy some tickets in Dodger stadium and I, it didn't work out the four pack. And, and, and so I loved Michael. I loved the music, but kind of the, especially in those early days, um, was, was almost funny, but his talent was so outrageously good that uh, I, I was just drawn to the music. So how did you originally come to work in the recording industry? What led you to that career? Well, back in the early 80s, you know, I'll, I'll date myself, the music industry was very strong. But if you were just a kid in high school, you couldn't really, you know, tell your guidance counselor, I want to work, you know, I want to work in recording studios. I mean, there, there's, there was <laughs> nothing in the book, you know, that, that, told you how to do that so i moved to los angeles my parents set me up in a little tiny apartment and i went to a recording school a school called sound masters um, which i believe is long since gone and the funny thing was i, I was working at sound masters and and it, it was an amazing experience to learn the fundamentals and even today i, I sometimes teach uh, courses on recording and I'll go, guys, close the computers and let, let's go right back to the microphone and the cable and the preamp and let's really talk about this, you know, how to use these properly. So I learned some basics in signal flow and uh, compression and equalization and things like that. 
So I was at Soundmasters maybe for the better part of a year, and I got a job at, at Westlake. And it just so happened that, that Michael was recording Captain EO. And, and so it was the funniest thing. I would go to school, and, and I'm not trying to sound snobbish, but I'd go to school and, and uh, you know, kind of going over these fundamentals. And I was actually getting a little bit bored with it. And then I would go to work, and here's Michael. And it wasn't like I was in mixing his music right away. I was getting cheeseburgers. I was cleaning the bathrooms. But, but that's where it started. Um, so I, I finished up my schooling and uh, kind of got pulled into uh, the studio world with Michael doing Captain EO. My head sort of exploding now, being the massive Disney fan I am, hearing about Captain <laughs> EO stuff. <laughs> I could listen to hours of you talking just about Captain EO, really. <laughs> you know, we had Matt Forger. Matt was uh, Michael's engineer for Captain EO, and Matt and I are very, very dear friends. Um, he was with Michael. I, I, Matt was there for Thriller. Come on. So we, we actually did a seminar uh, in Orlando, I guess it was a year and a half ago, and we did a big segment on Captain EO. And we, we might do that again. We're kind of kicking around some ideas for 2016. So you should uh, jump on a plane, Q. Get up here and we'll do a, an EO seminar for you. That would be awesome. Did, did you get a chance to see it um, in its re-release currently? Like I guess you're close to Epcot. So did you oh, get yeah. a chance to see it? I, I think I just saw it about two weeks ago. Yeah, uh, it was good that they brought it back. I think that's currently the only one playing, the one in Epcot. Is that back in L.A.? I'm not sure. I know they had some film previews in there, but I'm not sure if EO's back. But I, I got to see it in LA and I got to see it in Tokyo Disneyland and in Disneyland Paris. So I've seen three of them. Well, you got to you got to get the Epcot. It's funny, yeah. man. I mean, it's still I mean, it's been summer, it's been busy here, but uh I mean, it's still, you know, I won't say it packs out the theater, but it's about 50%. That's a big theater. So people still come and still just love that that little movie. I think they should keep it. I think they should just do it like in a little small boutique sort of cinema and have maybe <laughs> a few effects, but they should just keep it forever. In I'm telling at Epcot, it, it would be a, a big boutique because it, uh, it it brings a lot of people in. <laughs> what were some of the other earlier projects that you worked on, whether Michael related or or other artists or projects? Well, to kind of bring you back to 1985-ish, something like that, um, I, I was what's called a runner, a studio runner at uh, Westlake, which is going out getting, you know, cheeseburgers for the for the band or the, making coffee, answering the phone, just kind of a do-it-all. It's very much an apprentice uh, position where everyone knows you want to wind up, you know, mixing records. But for now, this is where you start. So early on, my first few sessions were uh, a lot of jingles, doing stuff with uh, McDonald's. They had a campaign called Mac Tonight that I worked on, um, Levi's, Taco Bell. And then somewhere early in there, I worked on a Stevie Nicks album um, called Rock a Little. And I was one of the assistant engineers on it. And that was a lot of fun because I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan. So I was working with uh, with Stevie on that one, and and you know met some of those people, and then somewhere in there, uh, 
Michael set up camp at, at Westlake Studio D, and uh, and that's when the Bad Album was going to begin. And Bruce Wadian kind of had his crew. He was all set to go. But by then, I was pretty familiar with Michael and with Bruce. Bruce really liked me. Um, and Quincy, uh, they'd been working on an album called Running Scared. Not Michael, but Bruce and Quincy. And so they knew me. And, and there's no secrets. I mean, a, a young kid in a studio wants to learn. And I showed just an enormous interest in, in learning. And I, I guess it was Bruce. It was either Bruce or Michael, but I'm pretty sure it was Bruce, uh, came up to me and said, hey, look, you know, we're inviting you. Anytime you want to come in and, and hang out and watch, you're welcome. And so for the next eight or nine months, um, during the bulk of the Bad Album, I would work during the day, uh, you know, on a Taco Bell commercial or whatever it was. And then as soon as it was done, I'd run into Studio D and <laughs> kind of take my spot, you know, in the back of the room and watch this album be produced. So that was that was my school. Uh, no, not to disrespect Soundmasters at all, but when you get to be a fly on the wall with Bruce and Quincy and Rod and Michael, that's that's pretty staggering uh, learning environment. Wow, that's definitely um, a, a great place to start. I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and they were they were so welcoming. Yeah, and it was fun. You know, I talk about this on my seminars, but. I mean, it wasn't, you know, throwing water balloons at each other in the studio, but there was so much fun and laughter and joking that, you know, you, you couldn't, you never wanted to try and take over. I mean, I had huge respect for those guys, but they were so welcoming. And uh, for, for a young kid uh, to be sitting in the back, it was, it was a really amazing experience. For sure. So... Eventually, you be you sort of became part of the recording engineer team around Michael. Your website describes you as uh, also being one of Michael's technical director. So how did how did that come about? Did that come about later on? And how did you know what the what did the two roles involve? Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of stays with the chronology. Uh-huh. Um, when Bad came out, Bruce Bruce made up the phrase technical director. It, it doesn't really mean anything. It, it, it means nothing and it means everything. It, it's, you know, kind of the buck stops here. If we were going to go to a new studio, if we were going to try a new piece of equipment, if we were – everything falls on the shoulders of what he calls the technical director. He needs to have one guy that he can trust that uh, is going to set things up the way that he wants to record, the way that Michael expects it. So at the end of the Bad Album – there was a little change in personnel and uh, Bruce tapped me again and said, I, I think you're ready. Um, I, I'd like you to, you know, kind of be the next technical director for me. And it was, you know, it was scary as all I get out because I'd been watching. I mean, there was just so many details and, and the, the level of quality these guys expected. But, you know, you don't, uh, when an opportunity like that comes along, you grab it. So almost immediately uh, after the Bad Album was finished, we went into nearly a year of what you might call post-production, 
of doing dance mixes and video mixes and short films, Smooth Criminal, Moonwalker. And we, we had to change the music, change the edits, remix everything. So that's really, and because I had such familiarity with the project up to that point, that, that was kind of where I jumped in. And so then I, I stayed with Bruce for the Bad Album, and then we did uh, Quincy Jones Back on the Block. That was nearly another year when Michael was on tour. Um, we did that. And then we did uh, the Dangerous Album and the History Album. And, and I had a little bit of involvement in Invincible and some of the early work on Blood. But those were kind of my, my big my big projects. Mm-hmm. So, so bad was obviously a massive success. Having Nick gone, gone on now to sell over 30 million albums around the world at the time, like, do you think Michael felt the pressure of thriller and needed it to follow up, follow it up with something grander or he sort of just took it all in his stride? You know, th- there's all the, uh, I don't know if you want to call them rumors or whatever, where he had, you know, a hundred million written on his bathroom mirror or something that he wanted to sell. I don't know. I mean, you know, Frank DeLeo was always there uh, checking on us. We, we never let the record company in. That, that was the doors were closed to them. We just, we knew we were, we were working on something that was great. And I mean, song after song, I love that record. We just didn't, you know, we didn't talk numbers or sales uh, in the control room. It, it really was. It was all. It was all about music. It was all about <laughs> what are we going to have for dinner. It, it was very lighthearted. I never sensed any. You know, oh man, this has got to be perfect because Michael's got to sell a hundred million or beat Thriller. I just didn't. It sounds crazy, but I. I knew, you know, I knew that Michael did Thriller, you know, obviously. I, I knew who I was working with. But at the same time, we were just working on a project. And it was just a handful of guys that had their head down and were just working. We didn't really, uh, or, or I didn't uh, look at, you know, we, we have to make Michael Jackson the superstar a great album. We just had to make a great album, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So... Moving on to to how you, you were then involved in, in you mentioned you were involved in doing all the edits to the to the mixes or doing different mixes for the uh, video versions and all these other um, type of releases. Um, how hard was it to actually cut some of the old, um, longer versions of the songs down to fit the CD? On a technical level, it's easy. Mm-hmm. On an emotional level, it's very difficult. Sure. Uh, <laughs> You know, because the, these are Michael's babies, and he hears the the songs in a certain way. And and once again, I mean, the fun thing about the Bad Album, it was at a really interesting time in the music industry, where we were just stepping into digital. We hadn't been destroyed by Napster and iTunes and all that yet. It was just uh, we were using digital as a recording medium, but that meant that. Yes, a CD can be quite a bit longer than a than an LP, but a CD has an absolute, depending on the manufacturer, about seventy seven minutes, seventy seven minutes and ten seconds, something like that, and that's all you've got. You can't squeeze another half second into it. It's it's ones and zeros. It's done. 
And so for Michael, we would always have too much music and the songs were always too long. And it was always hard to make those choices of, you know, we've got to cut, you know, a, a repeat chorus out of this song. We've got to, you know, shorten the intro on this song, but you had to make it fit. And then, of course, it came down to, you know, even what songs are going to be on the album. And, and you guys know all these stories, but uh, I mean, on the Bad album, we had somewhere between 50 and 70 songs in some level of production. That doesn't mean we had 70 Man in the Mirrors in production. It means we had 70 grooves and ideas. And some of them may, may have only been worked on for a day and they'd be put on the shelf but uh, but you had to choose, you know. You, Michael might love twenty of those songs, but they're not all going to fit. And then it comes down to, well, maybe we should do a double album. But if you really want to kill your sales, do a double album. Um, so it was, and thankfully, I I wasn't involved in any of that decision making. Uh, that was. Michael and Bruce and Frank and Quincy, you know, they, they'd go upstairs and have those discussions. I just, you know, in a sense, I was just a soldier that uh, uh, did what, what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. So for, um, for all the songs that Michael would eventually choose to add to his, to his album, um, in your experience, is that the way he, he, that he always worked? Did he always over-record you know, past the four-minute line, you know, all the way to maybe eight minutes, and then how do we cut this down to make it fit? Well, I mean, that's that's kind of a fun segment in my seminar, mm-hmm. but especially on the Bad album, um, Bruce, Bruce really, uh, number one, Bruce is a genius. I, I just saw Bruce a couple of days ago, and I'm going to go have dinner with him again on Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. Bruce came up with this crazy idea of let's do all of the big the big dance songs about 10 between 9 and 10 minutes long for real and so the way you make me feel uh, smooth criminal uh, bad those are all about 9 minutes long you've never heard the the whole 9 minutes i have but uh, but we would just do you know repeat out chorus repeat 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 mm-hmm. repeat repeat so we had room to, you know, then we could easily cut it down to a three and a half minute single or a five minute video or a seven minute dance mix. We had all the material. We, we just had to scooch it around and, and, uh, and, you know, this was before Pro Tools and, and, you know, computers. I mean, we had computers, but we used them a little bit differently back then. But we had plenty of material to work with. We just had to decide how long to make the song or fit into a, a video sequence or something like that. Does that wow. make sense? Yes. Thankfully we got some like, you know, the, like the 12 inch mix album, we got some extended mixes on that and with the, like the false fade in the bad remix, which I think we all adore. Right. So we've, we've heard some longer versions of stuff. I think they're probably some of the, definitely the better, I guess you could call them remixes out of any of the work. It's just when it's the the song and it just goes for longer, like Leave Me Alone. There's a really great long version of that. Love those long mixes. And, and you know, and, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to pick on somebody like Skrillex. I mean, I have, you know, huge respect, but it, it's just so different now. You know, now, you know, a song goes to a remixer 
and it comes out and it's just kind of a weird shadow of what it used to be. Um, yeah, we, we were old school. I mean, Bruce just wanted to make big dance songs that would make people get onto a dance floor. And we didn't, you know, especially on the bad album, we just didn't need to bring in a bunch of, you know, additional stuff. It was a, it was a pretty good product to start with. And why, why mess it up too much? What were some of the highlights that you can remember, Brad, from that first studio session that you were involved in with Michael? Well, I mean, there's kind of a funny memory, and it, it's just one of those things that's it's so clear in my head, and it's kind of hard to convey to people. But at the end of, we'll call it my shift, you know, I would, uh, if I'd been working on a commercial or something in, in one of the other studios, it would finally be time for me to, you know, go into Studio D and kind of hang out with the guys for, for the evening. And Bruce is working on the song, The Way You Make Me Feel. Mm-hmm. And Studio D, I don't know if some of the listeners, you know, came to, to my seminar a year ago in L.A., but we were at Studio D, which was really fun. And it's got these gigantic uh, studio monitors in the wall. They're called Westlake SM1s. And... I don't know, there are 20,000 watts of power or something like that. They're just enormous speakers and and sound unbelievable. And they have four 18-inch woofers. And these woofers would literally shake the building. And when Bruce had the way it made me feel pumping, and especially if Michael was in the room, he, he would just go crazy. He'd crank the volume 100%. And I just remember this this sense of excitement when I'd be like, you know, I could finally go, you know, hang out with Michael and everybody, and and I'd hear that bass, that boom, 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 and I couldn't even. It was just the walls would literally rattle. You know, we'd have you know platinum albums on the wall, you know, in that hallway, and it was just that was kind of the beginning of it for me. It was so exciting to go back there and you know, and you open that door and. And I'm not trying to sound silly, but almost like, you know, in Smooth Criminal, when Michael opens the door and the, the smoke comes blasting out, it was almost like that, only it was sound. And just this huge wall of sound would hit you. And, and, uh, and that was, you know, that was kind of how it began. Over time, that, <laughs> that, that loud sound, um, Michael would listen so loud. Bruce would, was very disciplined about the volumes that he would use. Um, I've never worked with anybody more disciplined than Bruce Swedean. But when Michael wanted to come in and listen to a mix, Bruce would leave and I'd have to stay and play the mix. And Michael would, he wouldn't even say anything. He would just walk right up to the console and turn the volume up all the way. I mean, all the way. <laughs> and I would always have headphones around my neck. And as soon as you'd see him do that, you'd put the headphones on they weren't plugged into anything. It was just to cut the the volume just a little bit. You'd kill yourself. I mean, it was, I'd be trying to, you know, sometimes my wife would call and I, you know, grab, this is before cell phones. Um, you know, I'd be in the back of the control room trying to, trying to talk to her and I'd close the, the tape room, the door to the tape room. And, and I just, I couldn't hear her. I mean, it would just be so loud. And I would just have to say, I'm sorry, I got to call you back. Michael's listening to a mix. So, I mean, th- those are some of the early memories. Um, 
it was it was crazy. I mean, he you know he'd bring the chimps in, and you know it'd be time for him to sing a vocal, and I, you know you know Brad, can you hold bubbles? I'd be like, okay, and so I'd have to, and it was fun. I'm not trying to make it sound arduous at all, but you know, for a, a young guy uh, in LA who's a huge music fan and has nothing but respect for Michael. And I'm sitting in the back of the room holding bubbles with bubbles pulling in my ear while Michael's out singing. That's crazy. And, and, and that's just fun. So, I mean, every day was different. You know, the chimps didn't come to the studio every day, but you know, every now and then he just, he wanted to have fun. And, and, uh, so the, those early days, that album in particular was just, it, it was fun. It was music. It was food. It was friendship. Really, really special memories in the bad album. <laughs> um, so we know that uh, in hindsight, that some of the best songs on the on the history album, an album you worked extensively on, uh, such as Earth Song and They Don't Care About Us, had their origins not in the early '90s, but actually in the late '80s during the bad era. Why were those songs in particular set aside for later sessions and not finished for bad? Was it more creatively or time on the album? Truthfully, I, I don't know that much about They Don't Care About Us. Um, the first time I worked on that was on the History album. But Michael had so many demos and so many projects all over the place. Um, I, 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 just, I don't remember every, every origin. Um, Earth Song, yeah, Earth Song did come, I believe, in '87, something like that, '86, and it was just a, it was a pretty raw demo. And I, I've tried. I don't think, I don't think it was around during the production of Bad. It might have been towards the the end or it really wasn't something that we considered uh, for the bad album to the best of my memory. Okay. But, but he would have all these, you know, planet earth poem and, and, you know, what is it? Planet earth one, two, and three. I mean, there were just, there were all these kind of, uh, I songs were very important to him, but I think, you know, with Quincy in particular, Quincy, Quincy knows how to make a pop album. Quincy knows how to make an R&B album. So there may have been just a little bit of, uh, I, don't, I don't know, friction. Quincy knew what he wanted on that album. And I'm not sure that, I, I, don't, think, I don't think it was quite the time for a song like Earth Song. But you're right, the early demo does date back, um, way back there. And um, hopefully you don't mind, Brad, but well, I'm sure you know that um, a lot of the fans, uh, including Jamin, myself, and Q, um, we're all very extremely, you know, very curious about learning about Michael's more lesser-known you know, lesser songs, like Throwing a Life Away. Well, what's the story behind that song? Can, is there anything that you can tell us about that in particular song? You know, if, if I don't know, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, That's what we want. I, That's what we want. Yeah, I, I remember working. Here's the thing. I mean, even with the... Uh, you know, with songs, I mean, I worked on so many songs. Michael didn't talk about them a lot. I mean, like, you know, like DS, um, you know, people are always curious, you know, what those sessions were like. And, and I know we're not on the history album yet, but, or I guess we're, we're kind of heading that way. 
but Michael would we would work on the music of the song, the the scratch vocal, the BG vocals, and then get to the lead vocal. Um, but there wasn't, you know, even Man in the Mirror, we didn't like, you know, sit in a circle, you know, Indian style on the floor. You know, this is so important. You know, we've got to reach out and change the world and person by person. No, I mean, it, it's a great song. It's an important song, but we didn't, we, we didn't analyze the lyrics. That, that wasn't our job. Our job was to make it sound good and, and make it sellable for Michael. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean to sound cold and callous, but, but I don't, I don't want to mislead people into thinking that, you know, we had these, <laughs> these long therapy sessions about uh, the importance of a particular song, but there were songs that, um, that Michael really, really loved and, and, and pushed for and fought for. Do you remember any songs that he may have um, really like really liked, but he didn't include, or he sort of just left them on the shelf that never came out from that sort of era? Well, I mean, the one that, you know, anybody that knows me or has been to one of my seminars, you know, knows how much I love Streetwalker. And that, that was, you know, that was a funny kind of funny moment in time where, where he felt he loved that song. I loved that song. And it just came down to, you know, we've only got room on the album for, for one more song. And it was either going to be that or the Captain EO, uh, another part of me. And, and it was Frank DeLeo that, that kind of nudged the, the vote over to another part of me. But, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, there were, you know, Streetwalker, there were songs that would carry over from project to project. Earth Song was certainly you know noodled on a little bit during the the dangerous project but they weren't they weren't ready yet and and michael would have these just these ideas these these kind of grooves that they they would keep popping up but then you know bill Batrell comes up with a song like black or white and you're like well let's put that other one off a little bit and, and really focus on this and I don't want to make it sound like there was tension. I mean, Michael Michael wanted to deliver a great product. So he always wanted to include his songs if he could, but he was smart enough to use, you know, uh, songs written or co-written by other people as well. I think that in 1989, 1990 and 91, that sort of period is a very interesting one for Michael's history and his, his music. It's these intervening years that... I believe we can see a lot of change and, and artistic growth. During this time, Michael moved away from working with Quincy as his principal producer and started experimenting with multiple production teams on a variety of sounds. What are your thoughts on Michael's transition into a more artistically independent environment? And can you give us your thoughts on like the dangerous recording sessions and how that sort of differed? <laughs> well, that's... That's two hours of my seminar, cube. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> just but we'll, uh, we'll dive have into you got, it. Have you got? Have you got like the, a super quick nugget? Uh, of course, <laughs> of down. course. Um, <laughs> the uh, y- you know, at the end of the bad album, in fact, it was funny because then I went on to work on Quincy's album with Bruce. So Michael's on tour. Bruce and I are working with Quincy on Back of the Block. So I mean, the the family is really tight. And then I mean almost as soon as back on the block came out, we worked on a couple other things. I, 
I can't remember Streisand and a couple little things. Um, then it came time for um, for the the Dangerous album, and I, I'll never forget. We started that project. I believe our first day was at Record One in Sherman Oaks, and you know Michael walks in. Uh, Brian Loren was there, uh, Bruce, and there's no Quincy, and it's like this is so weird, and because it was almost like you know, dad not being there or grandpa or something. It was just, uh, I'll, I'll say dad. I don't want to be insulting to Quincy. And it was very, it was just so odd. And, and you could just kind of, you know, it's almost like a, the first day at school or something where it's, you know, okay, we're going to do this with a different teacher now. And, and once it, once it clicked into the groove, I mean, there was never, I was never part of a big discussion of, okay, guys, you know, Quincy's not going to be a part of this on, a, on this album for this reason. No, I mean, Michael's driving the, the train. We're, we're going to do what Michael wants. And, and I think the Dangerous album is brilliant um, in the way that it does have three production teams. And, uh, and, and that is something, I mean, you know, people that have been to my seminar know that's something that we spend a lot of time on, but, but three very different personalities, three very strong uh, egos, and, and three very talented guys. Um, I mean, Brian was there for a little while, but then uh, Teddy Riley took over. So you've got Teddy, you've got Bill Luttrell, and you've got Bruce Swedeen. And the, these guys, I mean, the, these guys are giants. I mean, they are talented and uh, opinionated and and yet, so it was this this odd, um, just kind of slightly dysfunctional family, uh, where the bad album, everybody was kind of working on the same thing, going the same direction. On Dangerous, you had three production teams um, creating very different sounds. Michael wanted to stay current. He wanted to, you know, ha- have you know more of a, an urban sound, New Jack Swing. Um, so Teddy's got that covered. Bill was killing it on on the type of stuff that he does, you know, black or white, and who is it? And and then Bruce, you know, is is bringing in just you know his monster sounds, you know, with jam and heal the world. So whether it was by design or or accident, to me, having those three production teams that kind of got along and kind of didn't was so smart and and michael you know michael loves a little bit of tension you know he he likes uh if things are just going perfectly smooth that's kind of boring and he you know he kind of likes you know he, he if you like the song you know he'd say you know you know they got some they got some jelly next door they got some smelly jelly and he would do that and I'm not I'm not saying he was being mischievous, but but you know, he'd come in and kind of, you know, say something like that to Bruce and they'd go next door and say it to Bill. And and what that's gonna do, that's gonna fire you up. You know, it's gonna be like, Well, I'm glad they got some smelly jelly, but I'll show them some smelly jelly and you know, just crank it up to the next level. So, you know, it's easy for me to look back on it years later and, you know, kind of suggest that's what happened, but but that's that's how, how I remember it. Um, it was, it was competitive. It was, it was fun. It it was a family, but it was not as unified a family as before. 
And, and Michael kind of dug that. I mean, now we had kind of three little production teams instead of just one. So kind of to follow up on, on that, with Brian and Lorraine's work still being largely unreleased, um, to what extent do you think that Michael was playing Teddy Riley off of Brian Loren? Um, do you think that Teddy Riley ultimately fulfilled the role that perhaps um, Loren didn't deliver on in the end, or was it just a case of picking the strongest songs and Loren um, to make the cut? You know, I mean, I, I think, I mean, Brian Loren has, has, and I really respect Brian, and we've mm-hmm. been just talking a little bit on Facebook, and we haven't really, you know, reconnected yet. But, um, I mean, he, he was bringing on the Prince. You know, very yeah. Prince sounding stuff, cool, cool stuff. And I, I honestly don't know exactly what happened. I think Teddy was just so big and, and Michael really, really liked the direction that Teddy's career was going. You know, at the end of the day, Michael's going to work with who he wants to work with. And so there, there was a change. I, I to this day, I mean, it sounds so silly, but you know, even like the the Simpsons, you know, Lisa, it's your birthday uh, by Brian Loren. I think it's it's just a beautiful piece of music. It's so simple and uh, and just has cool sounds to it. So I know Michael loved working with Brian. As far as what caused the transition, I'm not 100 percent sure. Michael's quite often described by his collaborators as the consummate perfectionist. For example, Will I Am discusses in the uh, 2010 Vibe article Redemption Songs by saying part of the reason why it took so long to put stuff out was because Michael was perfectionist. We would come into the studio and he would tell me it has to be perfect. All the sounds have to be just right. Sometimes we would spend a whole day just on drums. I'm telling Mike you know how long I've been working on this snare? And he would just say, oh, Will, you're so funny. He appreciated his honesty. To what extent was this description true of your working relationship seeing Michael work as well? <laughs> he, he, he was an extreme perfectionist. And he, and he learned that from Quincy. You know, there's a lot of uh, musicians that we would have come in. Steve Picaro, uh, you know, Steve would lay down a part. And, you know, Quincy would say, you know, oh, man, that's great. That's amazing. Um, do it again. Let's have another one. Let's have another one. And Quincy would just fill tapes with tracks to get perfection. And that's, you know, that's what Michael wanted. I mean, Michael, I'm not going to dissect his history. You guys are smart guys. But, you know, you go back to Motown and, and his dad and everything. I mean, it was hard work, push for perfection. You know, no, nobody's going to give you anything you ultimately you're the one that's responsible for how your record sounds so i mean it, it wasn't arduous you know it was just it was our job you know i would never see michael you know throw a tantrum and say you know the piano doesn't sound the way i want it to sound and you know storm out of the room but instead he'd find somebody else to play the piano and so he would surround himself with people that would deliver the level of product that he wanted. Yeah, I, I didn't work with, with Will I Am, but, but I have worked with Bruce for days of working on drum sounds, creating drum sounds. Michael wanted sounds that no one had ever heard. On the History album, we, we put the word out to 
you know, synth programmers and guys that created sounds literally all over the world. The Michael Jackson's in New York. We're doing a big album. We want sounds that no one has ever heard. And, and we would receive, I mean, just FedEx uh, uh, envelopes with dats in them and cassettes. And these guys would be sending their stuff in. And we would just go through it by the hour trying to find new and unique and unusual stuff. So, yeah, Michael, you know, we were always late on our delivery dates. You know, when, when we started the History album, it was uh, January of 1994, and we were going to do it in New York. And there's a whole backstory to that about there was an earthquake in L.A., and Michael was kind of freaked out. So we packed the whole the whole team up to go to New York. And and I told Bruce, I said, look, man, I got I'm in, but I, you know, I can't go for a year. You know, that's, that's going to be kind of hard. You know, I got a wife and kids and, and he said, that, you know, Braddy, we're going to go for three months. <laughs> I'm like, we are not. You're, you're, you're lying. <laughs> no, it's four months tops. Well, we were, yeah, you know, I was there for 16 months and that was just, you know, we had to keep pushing the deadline back and push it back. And, you know, it, it wasn't ready until it was ready and that was i mean that was michael that was bruce that was the team it it had to be as perfect as we could possibly make it did michael seem different at around this time as an artist in your experience um jumping into the history sessions um he was about to get married and he had a, a lot of anger you know because of what happened in 1993 um, yeah, he'd been, yeah, he'd been did, the hell and back. Did his demeanor change in the studio at all? Was he as, the same as always? You know, I, I I swear this is true. He he was the same. I mean, he was he was busier, um, if that makes any sense. You know, I think you know in the earlier projects he was in the in the control room with us a lot. By the time we were doing history, holy cow! At one point. We had something like 13 studios operating across the country. You know, we had Jimmy and Terry up in Minneapolis. We had uh, Dallas Austin. We had about seven studios going in in New York. And and Michael would have to, you know, be at all of them. I mean, there were times he just had to be there or, or check in. So. Yeah, we probably had a little less access to him than we were used to. But I would probably say, you know, kind of cautiously, he, he was he was maybe a bit more tired. You know, having gone through what he had been through, there's not a lot of people that could even survive that. But as far as his humor, when he, you know, when I, you know, I've said this many times, but, you know, when I would walk into the room, he would get up and give me a hug. And that's, that's just, that's who he was and that's how he was. And that was always, that was always there. So, you know, he'd go and drop a vocal on a song like DS where he's just, you know, letting it all hang out in terms of anger and, and then he'd come in and, you know, what, you know, what, what are we going to do for lunch? Or, you know, I've, I've got to, I've got to go meet with, you know, somebody about, you know, some tour stuff or something. I mean, he wouldn't come in. He didn't drag that stuff away from the microphone. He'd leave it at the microphone, and it was done. You mentioned him getting married. Mm -hmm. 
that was that was actually funny because he married Lisa. Um, I don't remember what month it was, but I remember I was flying in from LA, and USA Today had the big headline, you know, King of Pop marries the Queen of Rock. And we knew, I mean, Lisa would hang out, you know, she was in the studio with us quite a bit, but we didn't really know that it was jumping to that. And he certainly didn't tell us. And so I walked into the control room. It was a hit factory studio four. And he's sitting there, you know, Bruce is playing a mix or something. And I walked in and I had the, the paper with me and I rolled it up and I whacked him on the head and I said, you know, and I show him the headline. I go, yeah, it might be kind of nice if you talk to us once in a while. And, you know, a piece of wedding cake would have been nice. And, <laughs> and, he, and he laughed. But nobody knew. I mean, Bruce didn't know. Nobody knew. And that was – but that was the type of stuff you just had to – you kind of got used to. I mean, we worked with Michael. We were friends with Michael. But he had a huge life. And, and we were a part of that life. But certainly not – an all-inclusive part just you know fun funny funny stuff so with the history album well michael was quite notorious for over recording dozens and dozens of tracks but for some reason uh the fans find that the history era is uh barely it doesn't have many unreleased material that has been discussed or released do you recall much about any song <laughs> in particular, um, we know about um, the song called Faces, and yeah, yeah, there were there were some, uh, yeah, there there were some really really cool songs that were recorded during that era. I I, I there are certain things I can say and there are certain things I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's some there's a, a handful of things I think would be really fun to be released, and that's out out of my hands. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. You know, uh, us fans, we always want to know anything we can scrounge, any crumbs that fall on the on the floor. Yeah, it's just interesting that that sort of period of time, and I think as the albums um, kept coming, there sort of seemed to be less information about anything that was recorded that wasn't record that wasn't released. It just seems very interesting. That's yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, faces was it. It's it's a huge song. It's it's an incomplete song. I mean, I'll just I'll just lay that out there. It doesn't right. have a lead vocal, okay. um, and it, it's sort of it's sort of a first cousin to the whole uh, uh, Planet Earth poems. You know, t- ties in really snugly with some of those. Which songs that never made it into tour set lists would you have really loved to have seen MJ perform? Oh wow! I should probably look up what his tour set list was. <laughs> I know that people. What he only did um, another part of me, just a handful of times, right? And he and he didn't do Stranger very often. Oh, on the history tour, Stranger was. Was, was that a was that a yeah? Because that sort of replaced Human Nature in the set list on the history okay. tour. I mean, I, and, and I'm I'm just going to show my ignorance here slightly because it's funny. I worked on the on the, I would launch the tours. I, I launched a couple of the tours, meaning we would take the music that we'd worked on on the on the album, restructure it for the band. We had to radically change the keys and the tempos, and then, you know, teach the band um, these new songs, and. 
and, and I talk about this in my seminar quite a bit, but if you listen to, and you guys know this, but if you listen to, uh, especially the, the more up-tempo songs, you know, Smooth Criminal and different things, we would speed them way up for the tour and then pitch it way down because we had to get it to a key where Michael could sing it night after night. Um, there's just no way he could hit those high notes, you know, constantly. So even though I've, I've seen Michael perform live, I don't know, 15 or 20 times, something like that. I just, I don't remember, you know, every song that was or wasn't included. Um, human nature was, that, that's always kind of been my standout. Um, if I have to look at the entire catalog and, and pick my favorite, um, it's going to be human nature. Mm-hmm. So seeing that one live and the way that, um, you know, the, the lighting, the way that he had that thing just dialed in. Um, did, did he stop doing that on the history tour? Now I'm, now I'm interviewing you. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's he unfortunate. Replaced, yeah. Well, thankfully we had, you know, the DVD at, at the time growing up, we had seen the, the Bucharest show and the DVD and of human nature. So at least we'd sort of seen it as much as we could growing up. But yeah, on the history tour, he sort of dropped in Stranger in Moscow to replace that moment. Which, it's I mean that's that's a it's funny because Stranger is probably you know my my third or fourth favorite song, so if if it's time to retire Human Nature, Stranger is about the best choice to replace it. Mm-hmm. What what was the most spine tingling vocal that you've ever heard, when Michael deliver in person? Brad? Mm, wow, that's a hard one. That's a real hard one. I haven't been asked that before. That's a good question. Um, I will tell you this, that there was one song, uh, I'll, 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 I'll answer your question in a second, but, uh, while I'm thinking about it, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. When Michael would sing a vocal, um, we had very strict rules and these were Michael's, Michael's rules, not mine. Um, there were, there were no guests. I mean, it was very rare that a guest would be in when he was singing a lead vocal. The lights were all shut off. Bruce and I would pretty much be working, you know, with the the lights of the meters and Mike would be out in a pitch black studio with uh, um, a light on the music stand. Um, And we had our whole, you know, everything we had to do to kind of prep for the vocal, the, the hot water that he would sip on when he was singing and um, the, the headphones would have to be set just a certain way. And, and we always had to have a heater for him. He was always freezing cold, so we'd have a heater blasting, you know, silently, you know, <laughs> blasting on him. Um, so we had all this uh, stuff that we would do. And and I loved vocal dates. I mean, it, that was that was the that was the big show. I mean, when Michael's going to, you know, especially lead vocal. And I think it was the song "Gone Too Soon" was the only time that. Bruce looked at me, you know, Michael kind of whispered something to Bruce and Bruce looked at me and said, um, Michael doesn't want anybody in the room. I mean, he just wanted Bruce. And, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't hurt or anything. I didn't go, you know, curl up on the couch and cry. But that song was so emotional and special to Michael that uh, it was just it was just him and Bruce when that one was recorded. But as far as the most uh, spine tingling, I mean there's some stuff that happens in, in keep the faith that, 
just blows me away. And that that one, it's that's just a really, really special song to me. The vocal on that one was spectacular. Man in the Mirror, um, that those sessions were a little bit bigger. I mean, that was Quincy and Saida, and, and uh, uh, you know, some of that was caught on film. So that that stuff, but but that vocal, I mean, he just he killed that vocal. You know, even even some of the rock stuff that he did. You know, black or white, where I mean, he's just screaming and not screaming, but I mean, he's his voice is so powerful at that point in his life. Yeah, so it's it's hard to just pick one. I I I guess I, I would kind of lean towards keep the faith, as I mean, both him and the Andre Crouch Choir. There's stuff that choir does in that song that's almost not human, and it's that's a song that I I encourage people to come to my seminars and people that don't know Michael Jackson music, you know, pop that one and listen to it a couple times and really, really powerful song. We were very lucky. He sort of worked with the Andre Crouch choir quite a bit. There's some amazing stuff that came out of their collaborations. I, I like we've, there's rumors of, or that we've heard bits about changes that he worked with, with the Andre Crouch choir and history sessions. Do you remember anything about sort of anything worked on for that track with the Andre Crouch choir? I don't. I'm That's sorry. okay. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. A song, a song called changes. Was that released or is that kind of one of the hidden tracks no. or. Yeah. That's sort of one of the hidden tracks that hasn't come out. Changes. It's all those changes. And they all had funny names too. And they, they may have changed names too. It might have. I mean, during Bad, I mean, the song Bad was called P, P-E-E, and it was going to be a duet with Prince. Uh-huh. So so there's, you know, a lot of times uh, we would have working titles for songs, and then by the time they'd get released, it would have a different title. Or So, yeah, cha- Changes, that might have been one that he did with, uh, with Brad and Eddie Delena. I, I don't know that one. If I heard so, it, I'd probably remember it, but I don't know it by that title. That's okay. Invincible represents an era in which Michael started to shift towards a very contemporary urban sound with Rodney Jerkins at the helm. Prior to this was Blood on the Dance Floor in the late 90s. In Mike's estimation, this album sort of represents Michael at his most artistically independent, creative, uh, very experimental and free what was it like during the blood on the dance floor sessions? Can you sort of set the scene for us? How was it for you? Did it differ from previous sessions? I did some of the pre-production work on blood. I, most of blood, I believe, was done in, I think, in Switzerland or in the south of France. And that was with uh, uh, Brad Buxer, Mick Kozowski. Bruce might have been involved in that. I, I wasn't part of a lot of those sessions. So... I, I can kind of tell some secondhand stories, but as far as far as me being there, mm-hmm. the you know the the team had changed, and and I by then I was so busy at Neverland, um, I, I didn't do a lot on Blood. I did some of the early production, but not much. Right. So what did you do with the early production? What what did you sort of set up well, for I, everything? Well, when when I say that, it's more some of the some of the carryover songs. In other words, songs we probably worked on in an earlier form. Now, the song Blood on the Dance Floor, at least the vocals, were actually recorded um, at Dieter Dirk's studio in Germany. Mm-hmm. 
And that's where we just had our seminar in June. So people got to stand behind the microphone and have pictures taken with it and all that. Well, of course, Superfly Sister, I mean, that goes back to uh, Brian Loren. I mean, that was an old one that we worked on uh, on the Dangerous album, early in the Dangerous album. Love Morphine. That That's Brad Buxer. Morphine, I believe, I'm almost positive we were doing a bunch of that song during the History album. I think Brad, Michael, and Eddie were, were working on that at Hit Factory, and I love that song. That's dark and creepy, and Michael wanted it that way. Ghosts and Is It Scary? I'll tell you about the, the video shoot uh, for Ghosts. I was involved in that quite a bit. They, they rented out, I think it was Van Nuys Airport, uh, the, the big hangar out there. And they had a, a, a sound team out there, and they just they couldn't get it loud enough for Michael. And I, I don't remember the exact chronology of it, but Michael got in touch with me and said, you know, can I please put something together that's loud enough for him to dance to? So I, I think I've got a picture of it on my Facebook page, but I, I built this enormous sound system. It's actually stuff that we use from the studio. I brought some giant studio monitors in and just this stack of amplifiers and put the whole thing on wheels. And these poor film guys, they just, you know, had never really seen anything like that. And I'm like, well, you've never worked with Michael Jackson. And, you know, we'd have to roll this thing around. I mean, it was, I mean, the speakers were bigger than, it'd be like two refrigerators side by side, two American refrigerators for clarity. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, just enormous amount of sound that, that Michael would need. Um, and it would just, I mean, it, it would, you, you'd think the hangar was going to fall down. It was so loud, but that's, that's what Michael wanted. What else? Well, Scream, we'd already done. Stranger, we'd already done this time. Yeah, so, yeah, Blood, I mean, half of it's remixes. And I do know that Blood, the, the title track was, I know that was recorded in Germany. But I, I wasn't involved in in the remixes, most of which I think took place in Switzerland. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that when you talk about not being involved in the record, because um, when I first heard, when I first bought the record um i heard I was, I was in the car and i must have been like 11 or 12 years old at the time and i i was listening to the album and yeah thank you <laughs> and i was listening to the <laughs> album and uh i was just thinking it sounds different like michael's like it's like the mix like i don't know but i just knew that the mix was different i'm like what well, why is it different and it was years later that i looked at the credits and i saw oh, bruce Sudin didn't mix it <laughs> and, so and, you know it was like a different no, team no, I'm I'm going to be really careful with that because yeah. uh, Mick Mick Gazowski is uh, oh he's great oh man I love Mick yeah. Uh, but yeah I mean it's a different it's a different sound yeah and uh, Bruce brings something to the table that nobody does and uh, but having said that yeah I mean morphine um, it's just it's you know Michael didn't want a, a rich lush heal the world sound, you know, for a song like that. He, he wanted it to, you know, have some edge to it. And so, yeah, it's, it's just different, different record, different sounds. Sure. So moving to 
to Invincible, I know um, you've mentioned that you haven't worked, you didn't work on Invincible too much. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in, in on that record? This is going to be so tacky, <laughs> but um, it was just it was a different time. I was by then I was working. I was probably doing Elizabeth Taylor's house at that time. Michael got me started on this second career, and. I won't drag you through too much of the history, but uh, the music industry had changed so much um, during the years that I was with Michael. And he kind of, you know, he had the, this small little group of people that he really trusted. And I guess I kind of fell into that group. And he, he wanted me to start doing a bunch of work up at Neverland. And I'll get to Invincible in a second, so mm-hmm. don't don't let me forget. But uh so we started building things. He, he would come up with these crazy ideas and ask me if I could do it, you know, having music here and music there and a video wall here. And, and just, and, and I fell in love with it. I, I was at Neverland so much. And then that grew into me doing work for a lot of his friends and meeting more people and starting my own company. So in the midst of all that, I would go check on, on I would just stop by and see how Invincible was coming. And and I'm not trying to sound like a big shot. I mean, it's just I, I knew those guys, so I could kind of stop in and and check on them. So I I was not involved, you know. By by then, the majority of my time was spent either building things or I I, I think I rented a few pieces of equipment to the to the invincible sessions. Right. But I'd stop by and I would talk to the crew over there. And again, I've got to be careful about what I say. I, I respect all these guys. But the vibe was, it was just so different. It was, you know, and I know Rodney's produced some great stuff. It was just different. You know, it was, you know, round the clock, literally 24 hours a day, you know, working on drum sounds. And, and uh, I mean, one thing about Rodney, the guy works hard. I'll, I'll give him that. But kind of, and this was over at Record One. But kind of that uh, that family that uh, had developed, you know, during uh, bad, dangerous, and history. I, I think a lot of that that sense was gone, and, right. and it was a, it was a new team and it was a new sound. And uh, so, even though there was a part of me that you kind of wanted to keep keep it going, um, I was kind of ready to move on and work with Michael, maybe in a different part of his life, and. And so I, I, you know, even though there, there's certain songs on the History album that I think are amazing, I'm sorry, on the Invincible album that I think are amazing, I think overall it just has a different a different sound and maybe a slightly different feel. So Brad, what are you sort of working on at the moment? We sort of know that you've got your in in the studio with MJ Seminars that you you're involved with, you you tour the world with really. Um, so you're working on that. What else are you sort of working on at the moment? And then tell us a bit about the seminars and what people can expect. Yeah, the the seminars. It's kind of funny. I kind of refer to that as the strangest hobby a person could have. And it really is. I, I know we'll talk about seminars in a minute, but uh, it's just kind of grown. It just continues to grow, and, and it's kind of a fun little hobby. As far as a day job, yes, Brad Sundberg still has a day job. Um, I, I just, you know, I like to say I build stuff. Um, we, we do a lot of uh, audio video installations. There's a community not far from my house called Disney's Golden Oak, 
where people can, you know, live with Mickey, you know, as close as you could be to Disney World. So we, we do some pretty extravagant houses over there uh, in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm working on a design right now for a, a pretty large house where they want me to create um, almost like artificial fireworks over the pool. And we're still trying to figure out how to do that, but just using, you know, lasers and kind of club lights and things like that. Um, but, you know, the day-to-day is putting music in people's homes. And and I love music, and to be able to do that, even on a technical level, is really rewarding. So that's, that's what keeps me off the streets uh, during the week. And then a few times a year, I disappear and pop up in Europe or Japan or Russia and tell stories about Michael Jackson. Can you, can you tell the, the listeners where you've uh, put the seminar and where people might expect to, to see your seminar in the, in the coming, I don't know, 12 months or so? Or, or is that too well, early to, to tell? Yeah, well, yes and no. Let, let me tell you how the seminars came to be first. Um, mm-hmm. It was about three years ago, um, I met a couple of guys from, from France, and they asked me, if if I would consider coming over, playing some music, telling some stories, um, sharing some memories. And it turned into a 12-hour, let me say that again, 12-hour <laughs> event wow. where we were, we were in a recording studio. And I don't, I can't remember, there were like eight or ten of us, something like that. And we just played music and and I would tell stories. And, and there's really no script to it. I mean, it's kind of funny. I think I've got some pictures from it. It was, it was literally me in a box of tapes, and I would just go, "Well, oh, here, here, let me play you this." You might think this is kind of interesting, and 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 after I did it, um, and the response was was really strong, and we decided to you know put a little bit of a form to it, and so we did our first uh, in the studio with MJ in New York, and and it was very well received. And I was nervous and barely knew what I'm doing as if I do now. But it, people really, really seemed to enjoy it. And, you know, we kind of peeled back, you know, let's really talk about how he worked in the studio, um, how we stacked our vocals, why we did things a certain way, why the songs were nine minutes long. And I think, you know, the, the fans, I mean, you can only, you know, read so much about you know, certain things and, and all the tabloid crap and all that. And they really want to, there seems to be a genuine interest about what it was like to work with Michael in the studio. And since then we've, uh, I guess we've done something like 65 events everywhere from, from Russia to Japan to, you know, several cities in the U S and uh, through a lot of Europe and people keep coming back and, so this past June, we, we had a, our biggest event yet was a four-day seminar with Brad Buxer and Michael Prince in uh, Cologne, Germany. And, and we had people that came for all – I mean, each day was different, and I'd never really done that before. And so we had people buying tickets for, you know, for all four days, and, and I thought it went really, really well. The MJ fans loved it. We met some really cool people. So now we're, we're kind of kicking around this idea uh, of 
I'm kind of calling it uh, Camp MJ. And we're looking at 2016 doing uh, either Camp MJ or MJ Camp, however you want to call it. But doing an MJ Camp, uh, one of them in Europe and one of them uh, in the U.S., probably in Orlando, where, you know, we'll give people a lot of notice and tell them what's going to happen. But Brad Buxer wants to be a part of it. Michael Prince wants to be a part of it. I'm good friends with Steve Picaro. I'd, I'd like him to consider it. But just a place where, I mean, it's a combination of <laughs> workshops and comedy show. I'm, I'm kind of joking, but uh, <laughs> but these are fun guys. And it's not a college course of you know, somebody walking up and down, you know, with a, with a pointer, you know, pointing at a, a screen, you know, explaining things. It's, it's fun. So we're, we're looking at doing, you know, a couple uh, MJ camps next year. We definitely, we, we've got, you know, I, I know Australia has been so patient and, and I got to tell you, I, I'm being completely honest. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a hotshot. This thing kind of, you know, was born uh, in, you know, in my little upstairs studio. And to get emails, you know, day after day from people, you know, in Australia and in Switzerland and in Japan and in Russia, you know, will you please come here? Will you please bring it here? We can't afford to come to you. Will you please, you know, it's humbling. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And, and I, I mean that it's not, I don't take any of this for granted. Um, we've put together a presentation that I, I think is really, really fun and musical and, and, uh, genuine. And that's something, even when I talk to you guys, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't do me any good. Once I start lying about stuff or making things up, the whole thing goes out the window and I'm not into that. Michael was a, was a, sweet guy, a dear friend, somebody that I really, really loved and respected. And if I'm going to do something that is to honor him and to uh, just tell what it was like to work with him, it's, it's, it's going to be right. And it's going to be sincere and legit. And that's something that we've worked really hard to do. So as far as 2016, yeah, we're going to do a couple of these camps. Um, and, you know, and we're kind of having some fun with it, you know, do, you know, maybe do like a, a moonwalker night or something where, you know, we watch moonwalker under the stars. What we're, you know, it's still really early. We're playing with ideas, but, um, in, in early next year, we haven't fully decided where we're going to go yet. I know that, uh, we, we've got so many friends in Russia and unfortunately, it's getting a little more difficult for Americans to to go to Russia. Not bad, but uh, um, it's just something that we're aware of. So we might do something like in Helsinki, and which is just across the border from Russia. So that's something that we're looking at. Um, we've got a group in London that is certainly excited about you know having us come back and do something again. So it's it's humbling. It's exciting. It's, it's the strangest best hobby a person could have. And I'm very, very thankful for it. You might've mentioned in an interview or two that you're actually working, writing a book. 
can you tell us anything about if you are working on a book and what we could look forward to and when it might be finished? Cause it sounds like you're pretty busy. Yeah. Um, I, I the answer is yes and no. Um, yes, I, I definitely have a book that I'm, that I've been working on and it's, you know, it's going to be a collection of stories, um, from, you know, from the seminars, from, uh, articles that I've written, it's, it's not going to be a, you know, then on this record, we use this microphone and we had the mic preamp set at this level, you know, I can do that, but that's not the point of it. The the point I think is to make Michael a little more accessible. It's just going to be a collection of stories, very similar to my seminar. So it's funny. I mean, you, you say that I, I, I tease my dad very good naturedly. He kind of, He'll kind of look at me and go, how's the book coming? I go, well, I haven't really done much on it in a few weeks. Um, it's hard to write a book. I had no idea. As much as I love to write, and I really do, the discipline of sitting and writing a chapter in a book, man, it's it's harder than uh, – it's just it's more difficult than, than I would have thought. But it is important to me, and in a weird way, it's kind of – a legacy that I want to leave for my girls. I've got four daughters and I think it's important that they know, you know, who their dad worked with. And, uh, and I think the fans might, might enjoy kind of hearing some of those stories. Sounds, uh, very exciting. I'm sure for, for fans and, um, and for anyone who's interested in music, I think is from someone like myself, who's uh, attended your seminars, I think, uh, to have your experiences sort of engraved in a book will be so valuable to everyone. So really looking forward to that. Well, I mean, there's, you know, I, I haven't written this chapter yet. So I'll, I'll give one away, but um, I was telling somebody this, uh, a couple of friends of mine last, last week um, during the dangerous album, there, there's so much about making albums that people don't understand. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a big machine where you walk in and push a button that says hit record and then poof, you get a record. You know, it's, it's people and it's, it's stories and it's friendships. And, and during the history album, I'm sorry, during the dangerous album, we had, there's a lot of downtime, meaning, you know, maybe we're calibrating a machine or there's some, you, you can't record 16 hours a day. I mean, you'll go crazy. There has to be time when you just step out of the studio and, and so I love to cook. And at Record One, we had a, a kitchen. And you can only eat restaurant food so many times, you, even though we had the best restaurants. And, but So I start, we started doing chicken wings, and which, you know, back in the 90s, I mean, it's, they're still popular in the U.S. I don't know how they are in Australia, but it's a, you know, hot, you know, spicy hot chicken wings, really, really popular here. So we started... Um, just ordering, you know, going to the store, getting raw chicken, and we'd be cooking these wings. And we'd, follow, you know, we'd make up our own recipes and get hot sauce and fry them, bake them, grill them, do all these different things. And they would be so hot. I mean, it was just like, you know, hellfire sauce that we'd put on these things. And Michael would love it. He would eat these stupid wings. And I'm, I mean, not, not, 
piles of them. But every time we started cooking wings, I mean, he'd, you know, he'd come out of his office or, you know, at his own little lounge office at the studio and he'd come out and he'd be asking about them and what sauce we used and everything. And it's stuff like that, that I was telling, you know, my friends this couple of days ago and trust me, my friends and I don't, you know, we don't talk about Michael Jackson all the time, but every now and then I'll kind of drop a story on them. And they're looking at me like I'm making it up. And they're like, come on. And I go, no, I'm serious. You know, we, you know, a bunch of goofy, we kind of thought of ourselves as kids. I mean, we were so young back then, but just a bunch of guys hanging out in the, in a kitchen making chicken wings and, you know, with Michael Jackson right in the middle of them, you know, eating them and laughing with us. And, and that's who he was. And, and that's the stuff that I remember. And if I can kind of, make him a little more human to his fans and i know i mean michael's got the most loyal amazing fans on the planet but i think they want to know that he didn't just you know walk among the gods and uh uh you know decree great songs no he was a dude that liked chicken wings and <laughs> that that makes it a lot more fun for me so that that'll be i think if i can kind of encapsulate you know stories like that in my book um that's that's the direction i want to go for sure if i want to talk about uh, neverland a little bit are you able to in a nutshell take us through the process of working with michael on his on his systems on his audio systems in neverland how did that come about that was a that's a really cool part of my life i mean it was back in i think in 87 he he bought the ranch about 13 million, something like that. And it was soon after, um, kind of, it might've been right before the bad tour or, I mean, he would come back on breaks and, and, and he'd call me and he'd want stuff done. And he, he, he bought the ranch and he wanted some music in his bedroom. That was the very first thing. So he, he, I think we were in the studio when he asked me if I could do something for him. And, and even that in itself, I know it's, it's hard to kind of convey, but I mean, I'm a, I was a kid. I mean, I'm learning how to record and I'm, you know, hanging out with, you know, Bruce Swedeen and trying to, you know, master my skills a little bit. And, and here's Michael Jackson coming to me and asking if I can go to his ranch and put some speakers in his room. It's the whole thing sounds kind of strange, but I said, let's go. So I, I did that. And then that kind of grew to, he wanted more speakers, he wanted speakers here. And, and next thing you know, he buys this um, train. Hey, Brad, can you put music on the train? I'm like, holy cow. You know, I, I sure. And it turned into probably. I don't know, a 16-year run of he would want more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And he would call me and ask me if I could do it. And as I look back at it, and I, yeah, I can go into as much detail as you want, but the cool thing was he trusted me. And I, I wasn't – there were so many companies in L.A. that were better equipped to go to Michael Jackson's ranch and – have, you know, guys in uniforms and big shiny trucks and, you know, and deliver whatever he wanted, but he wanted me to do it. And, and that meant so much. And, and it just became, um, yeah, I mean, it, 
number one, it was a labor of love. I loved Neverland. I abs- every time I went there, I, I've been fortunate to travel to a lot of different places. It's tough to beat Neverland. When, when it was in its prime, and what Michael, the, the detail and love and attention that he gave that ranch, it was amazing. And to be a small part of that is something I'm really proud of. And I remember back in the 80s or 90s, you know, there were comedians that were always making fun of Michael. And, and you know, there was one guy who's like, you know, who wants an amusement park in their backyard? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And I was, you know, I'm thinking to myself, dude, you have no idea. You, you, you know, you're blowing your income on a bunch of, you know, coke up your nose. I don't know that to be factual, but, but I'm like, compared to how a lot of people blew through their money, and, and Michael was not a good money manager. We're not going to spend time on that, but, but Neverland was spectacular. And to, to be a part of it and to actually be allowed to kind of dream with him and have those meetings where it's like, what if we did this? What if we did this? I wouldn't trade that for the world. It, it, was, it was an amazing part of my life. What were Michael's and also your inspirations for what you actually worked on at Neverland with installing music and lights? Oh, Disney. Um, I've been, I know we talked about Disney just a little bit before the show. I'm sort of guilty as charged. I'm a little bit of a Disney geek. I always have been. And when we lived in LA, um, my wife and I had annual passes and our girls had annual passes to Disneyland for years. I mean, before it was cool, we had annual passes and I'm such a geek. I actually proposed to my wife at Disneyland on the uh, on the steamboat. Awesome. So, yeah. So we're we're really we're really weirdos. So Michael knew that, and so even during the Bad Album, even during Captain EO, we would talk about Disney, and he'd ask me if I because we used to go usually twice a month, and that doesn't make sense to people. But if you're an annual pass holder. You go, you have dinner, you walk around, you have dessert. You're not doing a, a manic day. You're just enjoying the park. And so Michael would always, you know, very often on a Monday, you know, he'd come in and, you know, did you go to Disneyland over the weekend? Yeah. Oh, what'd you ride? What'd you do? What'd you see? Because he didn't have that luxury. You know, it was a lot harder for him to go. He could put on one of his goofy disguises, but, but he couldn't go as easily as I could. So when we started Neverland, I mean, it was just obvious that he wants Disney on steroids. And, and I mean, D- Disney does things well. I very cautiously say Michael Jackson did them better. Um, the, the detail that we put into that ranch, and I love Disney, but we had stuff going at that ranch that was really, you know, kind of a step up. And, 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 you know, we had Disney Imagineers that were involved. Um, he had a couple, when you went into the theater, there were a couple dioramas where you'd push a button and there was uh, Pinocchio coming to life. And the other one, I think, was sleeping. Uh, Cinderella, I can't remember. I think it was Cinderella, and, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Cinderella. So, you know, we, we had some Disney involvement, but as far as... You know, if he wanted music, you know, on the bumper cars or on the carousel or on the trains, that that was all uh, that was all me. 
and he and he wanted it done. He he knew I would do it to his standard, and I didn't have to ask or get permission. Um, I just said, "Here's what it's going to cost. We're going to do it right." And he would just when whenever I did something right, um, especially a big music system, and I'd play it for him, I'd crank it up as far as it would go, and he would start to dance. And he would if he if it was if it was a good mix or a good system or He'd always say, hurt me, hurt me, hurt me, Brad. And uh, and that was his way of saying, you know, this is awesome. You know, make it a little bit louder. But but he uh, when you pleased him, it, it felt really, really good. Were there any special considerations that you had to undertake when when you're building a system at Neverland Ranch? Or was it similar to any other job that you had? It just it was just at a bigger scale. Well, you, I mean, the, the the funny thing is, is you know, we spent so much time at Neverland. Um, <laughs> there are no other Neverlands. You know, I, I wish I could do another job like that. With him, it was how you know how big can we go? Um, you know, we we brought the jumbotron up there and set it up, you know, kind of on the the edge of the park. And he and I were up there when when I tuned it. We were listening to. Uh, this is gonna bug me now. Um, it was it was a it was a rock album. I, it wasn't it wasn't Def Leppard. I'll, I'll I'll think of it in a minute. But I mean, it was just a huge sound system that we had, and you know, and you got the jumbotron and the whole thing, and we would just go to great lengths to make this stuff amazing. And then I'd, I'd go up there, you know, on one of the family days or something, or if he had make a wish or something up there, and and he's playing. I think he always used to play. Might have been Peter Pan. I think was playing on it quite a bit, and that was fine. But it always just kind of bugged me. It's like this thing sounds so good. Can we just open it up and let these people hear some music on it? But you know, but that's that's not the purpose of it. Yeah, as far as special considerations, I mean, the only the only thing we we get into a little bit of trouble. Michael would have that uh, that park so loud, and up there at uh, in San Inez, he did his nearest neighbor was probably a mile mile and a half away, and there was a school right across the street. And if the school was having like a special event or a play or something, and we'd have the park just just screaming loud. Uh, you know, then the school would go to the guard shack and say, "Can you please ask Michael to turn the music down just a little bit?" And <laughs> so we would try and be considerate, but he'd he'd invite the school kids over once a year for a day just for them. So it it all, you know, there was always the the county was always kind of battling him a little bit because they didn't want it to turn into a Disneyland. I mean, it could the roads just weren't set up for it, but so he had to kind of walk that fine line of having it be his for his personal enjoyment but not going too big with it it's amazing hearing that even like the the school across the road which is not still at all not even close to where the park area of the ranch was could even hear the music like i've been really lucky to have flown around the perimeter in a small plane and seen even uh it was i think about 2000 seven or 2006 when the actual attractions were still at the amusement park so i got to sort of see how it was all laid out and it's in the middle of a huge valley it's like oh, in yeah. the middle of nothing so that the sound could travel 
that was loud. That was pretty loud then, I imagine. Well, and we can get into the physics of it, which you don't want to do. But I mean, at night and with uh, you know a little bit of fog and things, I mean, sound really has a weird way of uh, traveling long distances. Whereas during the day, it's not you, you can't hear it nearly as much. But on a on a fo- lightly foggy night, it's it's crazy what sound does. So this is a question basically from me because I'm I'm just curious myself and and also being a bit of a Disney park file. Um, any tips for music and lighting in home gardens and backyards? And how does music <laughs> and how does music and lighting influence like a park or a garden setting? And how that's, does that sort of then in turn influence people in those settings? That, that's that's a great question. Never um, never been asked that one before except. During on my day job, lots of speakers, softer levels. So, in other words, if you want to do a backyard, if you just put two speakers out there, if you're too close to one speaker, it's too loud. If you're far away, you can't hear them. So, you want to surround the whole space with as many speakers as you can afford, and and you can use cheaper speakers. So. My, my rule of thumb is go for a little more quantity over quality because you're going to make up for it just in a, a really smooth sound. The other thing, and I, I talked about this in my seminar, and if you really want to have fun, you can do what I call layering. At Neverland, we didn't have any birds. So we used to put bird houses up in the trees, and we'd record our own bird CDs. I still have some of them. And so we'd have chirping birds up in the trees, and then we'd have uh, we'd put a couple speakers like in hedges or in bushes or different places, and we could have crickets chirping. And then we'd have another layer of speakers all over the place with music. And it would be so much fun to watch guests. Um, we we had little surprises that we did. We had kind of some little sound effect things that Michael liked, and people you can kind of play with people's emotions just a little bit. Um, I mean, if, if it's, if they're hearing, uh, Debussy coming from 200 speakers all around them and there's birds chirping in the trees and the lights of Neverland are all lit up. Number one, you're at Neverland. I mean, it's Michael's ranch, but if you start taking those elements away, Neverland's not quite the same. And there were all these little details that we spent so much time on, um, getting the music you know number one michael would pick all the music um he would call me and say you know i want the day music to be this and i'd make cds of his favorite songs all classical music uh classical and disney music um no michael jackson music back then and he would create the playlist and and uh we would have the birds going we'd have the sound effects going we have the music going and it was, I mean, that that will absolutely set a mood, and, and people don't even know. It's like when you go to a to a fair or a carnival, and you know you want to hear the music and the the calliope and the, you know, all those all those factors come in. Well, we had to create all those at Neverland because it wasn't a fair; it was a backyard. So we went to great detail to to make all that stuff the way he wanted. Wow. Thank you so much for answering those questions. That was awesome. Of course. I sort of 
haven't got a garden of my own yet. I have a courtyard, but <laughs> think, thinking ahead of the future when I hopefully will get a garden where I can have trees and everything, I'm already sort of planning playlists and stuff Okay. for just, just to have in my own back garden, I hope one day. It, it, it adds a lot to, uh, dare I say, quality of life. I can imagine. So we've touched, um, touched on your seminars, Brad, and how, well, how what we think as fans, how valuable your seminars are. Do you think, though, that, that there's a greater responsibility for, for, for other people, such as you know, maybe Michael's estate or maybe his label or anybody else, um, to be working with people such as yourself and providing a platform such as um, yearly Michael conventions or something like that for you guys to deliver your content? Uh, the E word. Um, it's funny. I, I have a very uh, cautious, friendly relationship with the estate. You know, I, 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 re I respect them. You know, certainly John Branca has, uh, you know, I've met John several times. I certainly wouldn't, you know, go so far as to say that we're friends by any means, but, but I, I respect him. And, and he's, you know, as far as, you know, financially turning that thing around and making sure those kids are taken care of and, and guarding Michael's name, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I've, you know, I have very, you know, kind of cautiously reached out to them and said, maybe we could do something together. I think I bring something to the table. Uh, you guys, you know, you're, you're the estate and there's, there's really, there's really no interest. I mean, they're going to, they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. And, and that's, that's okay. So yeah, as far as, I mean, an annual, I, I think what, what people tell me, people that have been to my seminar is that it's, it's legit. It's real. You know, we're not, we're not going to have any, you know, holograms or anything like that. We're not, you know, we don't do any, you know, moonwalk contests or that's it, just not what I'm into. Um, I want to introduce people to the Michael that I knew as, as best as I know how. And, you know, it's not going to be, you know, a traveling Cirque du Soleil and I don't want it to be. I, I want people to come that genuinely want to be there. And I learn so much. I mean, I can't even tell you, you know, when you've got Joe Vogel in the audience or, uh, you know, Chris Cadman or, or these guys, good grief. These guys have forgotten more Michael Jackson trivia than I ever knew. And, and I, I don't mean that to be insulting. I mean, it's, it's intimidating. I mean, you were just talking to you guys, you start talking about blood on the dance floor. I've got to Google it and, you know, look up the track list because I don't remember. I don't, I, I, again, I have to be so careful how I word this, but I don't kind of live in Michael world 24 hours a day. Sure. I, I worked with Michael. Um, I love doing the seminars. And then when it's time to do one, I kind of, you know, I, I, I just do what I do. So yeah, as far as any long-term, you know, siding up with the estate or something i i seriously doubt it but i appreciate that they kind of give me the freedom to do what i do i stay out of their way they you know i don't i don't uh i'm not i'm not in competition with anybody i i just want to tell stories and meet people 
The other thing that I've noticed about doing the seminars, and, and this is I'm just starting to peel the onion back on this just a little bit, is there's a whole bunch of guys that worked on these projects. Um, you know, Steve Picaro, Jerry Hay, uh, Brad Buxer. They, we experienced something that we'll never experience again in this lifetime. And, and these guys, I mean, none of us are getting any younger. I'm kind of the youngest of the bunch and they want to tell these stories. They, I'm telling you when, after we finished in Germany with uh, Brad and Michael, they were, I mean, like, like tearfully joyful about how amazing it was that people had such a connection with Michael and with the music that we worked on. And, you know, for us, it was a segment of our lives that we were really proud of. But I think for them to be able to, for them and me, to start packaging this a little bit and just tell these stories, I mean, our wives have heard them enough. You know, like, <laughs> my, you know, you can only, that's why I say when I hang out with my friends, we don't talk about Michael Jackson because they don't want to. But to be able to go somewhere with people that really want to hear stories, it's so, it's, it's so huge to to them and to me. So that's another side of it that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. You know, I've, I've kind of been encouraging like Jerry Hay to join us. I, I would love to reconnect, you know, with like Bill Luttrell or Rod Temperton. It's, you know, it, it's something that it's still growing and I don't know, I don't quite know where it's going to go. Thank you for these incredible answers. Like we're, we've just both all blo- all blown away by your honesty and your candor and yeah, jumping <laughs> in and add, adding to them. It's all awesome. We love it. Well, well, the, 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 I didn't mean to cut you off, but that was just oh. something I kind of wanted to cover. So one of the most controversial aspects in the reality of being a Michael Jackson fan post-2009 is how many unreleased tracks are taken and posthumously altered and worked on and mixed, etc., and then they're sold as a Michael Jackson material. What are your <laughs> thoughts around unreleased Michael Jackson material coming out and some of the projects that you may have seen since 2009? Yeah, I mean, you know, Buxer and I have talked about this quite a bit. You know, I didn't really love Escape, and I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not, but that's how it's spelled. It was okay, and, and that's, you know, some of those songs... I hear those and it kind of brings me back to, you know, yeah, I remember that song. That's why we didn't put it on the album because it's just not that great. I mean, in the era that I was there, most of the really good songs were released. And yeah, there's a lot of other stuff on the shelves that it's okay, but just because it has Michael's name or Michael's voice on it doesn't mean that it's a great song. So then to hand it off to, uh, you know, 2015, you know, hotshot DJ or whatever, and uh, kind of make it modern and cool. I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I'm not that much of a fan. If they really wanted to do it right, I, I think it would be, it would be nice and correct to, you know, reach out to Bill Battrell or Matt Forger or John Barnes or Brad Buxer. And I mean, if those guys worked on the song back then, it kind of stands to reason that they should be the ones to, you know, see it to its conclusion. 
if possible. But those guys don't get called. So, so it's, it, it's a bit of a mystery to me. And I, you know, Brad and I, Brad Buxer and I have talked about it quite a bit and I think it's a little frustrating to him, but, um, but you're, you're not going to really argue with the estate. And, and like I say, I, I do respect them. And, uh, you know, and a lot of these songs, you know, I don't know. I see stuff online. Oh, just release everything. Let the fans remix them and do whatever they want. Well, that's not going to happen. And, you know, when stuff gets leaked, um, I don't know. I, I know the fans are incredibly curious, but the estate has to, you know, they, they want Michael's stuff to be Michael worthy. So it's it's a balancing act, and I, I don't know the, the the perfect answer. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more um, about you know having the original, or as many as the original people who worked on these records with Michael um, back on board for the releases. And I know that you know some people have been to some capacity. Um, Rodney Jerkins worked on Escape. You know, Teddy Riley worked on um, the song Hollywood Tonight on the on the Michael album that was released in 2010. Um, but then, you know, out of the woodwork, you have, you know, suddenly you've got announced that 12 songs that were recorded in 2007 um, with um, Eddie Cassio, with Michael's friend. And, and then you have other songs that came out from the 80s and then were remixed. Um, how do you feel about that? You know, truthfully... Um, I just, I, I don't follow it that closely. Mm-hmm. I do know that when escape came out, I mean, I, I listened to it three, four times and I, I just got bored. <laughs> uh, you know, if it's, it, it misses something, you know, here's, here's a lightning bolt statement for you. Uh, that, that was a joke, but if you go to, if you go to Neverland and Michael's not there, it's not Neverland. If right. you work on a Michael song and Michael's not there, it's not a Michael song. It's just a song. It it it's empty, and and there's something. If he didn't complete the lead vocal, and I don't want to get into all that, but um, I don't know. There there's kind of some cool grooves that uh, and and some kind of demos and things that that. I think the fans, the one thing I will give Escape is at least they uh, gave kind of the, the original versions. I, I think the fans would love to hear some of the stuff in the vault just in its raw form. But don't screw it up with some 22-year-old mixer in Brooklyn that uh, didn't have a clue what Michael was about. That, that kind of stuff just kind of bores me. I think, yeah, we were happy that we had the originals to listen to, that little a version of the originals to listen to from the Escape album. That was yeah. the saving grace for me, I think. Like on the Michael album, we didn't get any sort of stuff that had been not touched. Like did, did you listen to the, the Michael album when that came out in 2010? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like, no. I would love to have heard a version of Behind the Mask. I would love to know what the original of that was like, for example. Yeah, and I, I, I listened to it a couple times, and, and, and same thing. I mean, it was, it, it was okay, but I, I got bored very quickly. Right. I've got a couple of, we've got a couple of questions here from, uh, from Charles Thompson and from Damien Shields. Um, Charles wants to ask 
uh, wants us to ask you about Neverland Gates, um, whatever that means. I think it was and... about mu- music at the Neverland Gates you <laughs> okay. wanted to ask about. And, and uh, oh, was, oh, was, oh, is this my buddy Charlie from Huffington Post? Yes. Yes. And, and tell, um, me tell me he's got to do a Huff Post article on me. I'm not answering any of his questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And, um, and Damien wants us to ask you about a chapstick. You can choose which story you want to tell if you want to tell them. I, I don't yep. even know what the Neverland Gates is about. So. Okay, let, let's do this. Um, when, you, when, you, when you first go to Neverland, um, you drive through when, you know, this was back, obviously, when Michael was there. The first gate is down on Figueroa Mountain Road. And, you know, if, you have, if you're on the pass list, you drive through and you drive about a mile, something like that. And you come kind of crest over this hill and come down the other side. And that's when you would start seeing the, the green grass and everything in Neverland. And you, that's where you'd park your car. And then you would, or bus or whatever, and then we'd walk people through and they'd get onto a train. And that would take them up to the park. You, you never, rarely did you get real allowed to drive a car on Neverland. I mean, especially where there were kids there, just, you know, it just wasn't allowed. So there was, that's where the ornate gate was. And that's what pe- people have seen pictures of, it, the big black and gold gate with the crest and everything. So Michael wanted to kind of turn that into, um, we wanted to do something special there. So he said, Brad, can we put a bunch of speakers here? And, and you know, he, he wanted, when, when guests showed up, he wanted to just flood them with music. And I said, cool, let's do it. So we brought in a huge sound system. They actually had to build a little house for us for all the amplifiers and tons of work getting this thing, you know, speakers up in the trees and all over the place. And his instructions to me were, I want it to be loud enough to shake a bus. I said, okay, that's, that's loud. Let's go. So I built this monster. And then just for fun, I went into my studio and I put this little compilation CD of uh, kind of a best of MJ music. I had Smooth Criminal, The Way It Make Me Feel, uh, Billy Jean, just these little, you know, 30 second snippets of each. And, you know, the whole thing is like four minutes, whatever, four or five minutes. So, but Michael always had this rule that I couldn't play his music at the ranch. But I said, so I got the whole system done. I brought this CD up. I had my assistant with me, and I called him out from from the uh, from the house. And so he comes rumbling out in his little golf cart. He's got his you know, he looked like he just woke up, had his hat on sideways, and his you know jammies. And and I said, he says, "Is it done? Is it done?" I go, "Yeah." He said, well, "Can I hear it?" I said, "Okay." So I point to my assistant and he cranks up this music and it's Billy Jean and smooth criminal and Michael, Michael can't listen to music without dancing and he starts to dance. And I mean, he is just full blown. He's dancing for, for two guys, me and, and my assistant, Brian, and just tears it up, gets to the end and he's, he kept yelling at me, hurt me, hurt me louder. And we're turning it up as loud as it'll go. Gets to the end and he says, oh, that was amazing. But that's not what we're going to play. 
and we had probably a five-minute discussion about, Michael, people are coming to your ranch to see you. This is your ranch. You, no, no, we can't play my music. We never play my music. And I said, but we have to. This is the right thing to do. No, no, no. I said, what, what do we have to play? I've got a favorite song I want just for this space. I said, what? He says, do you know that song, Danny Boy? I said, Michael, that's like a funeral song for firefighters. <laughs> Everybody hates that song. No, I love that song. It's so beautiful. It's so emotional. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. From that day forward, anytime that those gates opened up, it was Danny Boy that was played. <laughs> I hated it. Hated it. Hated it. But that's what he wanted. Michael got what he wanted. That's so random. So. How did Michael affect your life as a person? Hmm. That's a hard one. Um, there, there's only one Michael Jackson, and and that's that's sort of a a bitter pill to swallow. I was just up at Bruce Wadeen's studio a couple of days ago, and we were talking about Michael, and and Bruce was playing me a couple of things that he's working on, and but he kind of you know whispered to me. He said, he said it's just he goes it's just kind of sad because there's there just is no one that can sing like Michael could sing. He was, he was so, um, he was complicated. That, that's kind of, that's Brad Buxer's word, and, and I like that word. Uh, Michael was very complicated. He was business smart like crazy. He would make some of the stupidest decisions, um, you know, whether it's you know money management or whatever. He was so much fun to be around. I, I you know, I'm 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 an American guy. It's not common that I go to work, for example, and I hug my coworkers. I mean, that's just not what dudes do. Um, with Michael, every time I saw him, I got a hug. I got a hug hello and I got a hug goodbye. And that softens you a little bit. And if you were going to work with Michael, you had to just let go of some of that nonsense of you know pride and ego and all that. And you just... You loved the guy. I mean, I genuinely loved him. And uh, it, it was a friendship that you, you rarely get. So, you know, as far as, you know, how he affected me, it, it was it was just, you know, it was a once-in-a-lifetime ride. And it was somebody that I, I wanted to please. I wanted to make him happy. And he had something to share with the world. I'm not trying to sound all, you know, hoity-toity or whatever, but uh, he, he had an amazing gift, and, and we took it seriously that that had to be uh, handled correctly. So it was it was an honor and a pleasure, and uh, he taught me perfectionism. He, he taught me he taught me patience, gratitude. For, for all of his worth and his uh, importance, he was one of the most grateful, thankful guys I've ever met. And, and I mean that right down to if somebody would, you know, loan him a pen. You know, he borrowed a pen from one of the runners at, at the studios and he wrote the runner a little thank you note. 
That's cra- I mean, that's crazy. I don't mean that to be insulting, but that's how he was. You just don't meet people like that ever. And he was he was one of a kind. How do you think Michael should be remembered? Yeah, pro- pro- hopefully with a lot of what I just said. He, you know, he was a dreamer. He, you know, he kind of like John Lennon. He he really wanted and believed that the world could be, you know, a peaceful, loving place, and you know, parents should tuck their kids in at night, and and he hated sickness and poverty and he wanted to try and fix all those things but you know one one human can't but he tried and and you know he was human he made mistakes he was just like all the rest of us but i think he should be remembered as somebody that was a great father he loved his kids he he uh, he was an amazing entertainer he was so shy in the studios and you know unless you know once he knew us and you know then he was fine but if we had a stranger or somebody new in there he was so painfully shy and then you'd see him on stage in front of 60,000 people and he was electric so i you know he would i would think he'd want to be re- remembered as a you know number one a, a great father and and uh and probably a, a great brother and, and an amazing friend and uh, and a phenomenal entertainer and and, uh, and a humanitarian. How can fans keep in contact with you, Brad, and find out more about your seminar? Um, we're you know Facebook is kind of the uh, kind of my my best friend and worst enemy. But you know, in Facebook, it's in the studio with MJ. And then the, the website is uh, in the studio with MJ.com. And we also have Twitter, which I believe is the, the Twitter is uh, in studio with MJ. So in, in the studio is the website or in the studio with MJ.com is the website and in studio with MJ is the Twitter. Thank you so much. We have just had the most incredible time listening to you to you answer these questions, and I'm sure that it just barely scrapes the surface of your experience and even what you cover in the, in your incredible seminars. But thank you so much for your honesty and your candor and for sharing so much. I've just had an awesome time listening, and I can't wait to even listen back to this episode when it goes to air. So thank you so much. Well, you're, you're, you're very kind. I appreciate it. Um, I'll, I'll say one quick thing. We've got a couple seminars coming up. Uh, we'll be in Chicago next weekend. Uh, and then on Labor Day weekend, we're in Orlando. But in October, October 10th, we're going to be in Vegas. And I think that one's going to be kind of fun. Um, there's already tickets are really starting to pick up on that one. Um, that's the weekend that Janet Jackson's in Vegas. So, no, she's not coming to my seminar, but uh, we'll do – people are going to her concert on Friday night, my seminar on Saturday, and then uh, MJ1 on Sunday. So I think that's going to be kind of a cool MJ weekend for fans if they can make it to Vegas uh, second week in October. I think that's going to be a really, really fun weekend. We'll continue to let people know about those seminars coming up. Thank you for, for letting us know about it on the show. 
But I thank you guys. Um, it's been it's always a pleasure to talk about Michael. It's always fun to talk about Neverland and uh, huge respect and gratitude for you guys. So thank you for uh, getting up early and, uh, and spending some time. So, Dan, that was pretty awesome talking to Brad. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to listen to it myself, actually. Yeah, it'll be um, it'll be really cool to go back and uh, listen to some of the stuff that he covered in the seminars and some of the new stuff that he talked about uh, during the show. And nerdy stuff that I asked about sound across gardens and stuff. <laughs> well, it's, it's valid. I'm it's so, valid. I'm so glad he answered that. That was so cool. <laughs> yeah. Now I just need a garden. Yeah, yeah, well, one day. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, so, yeah, that was really cool. And But you've actually been to one of the seminars yourself, haven't you? Yeah, I went to a seminar in London uh, last October, I think it was. And it was just such a cool experience because I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, there were some reviews floating around on the internet prior to the London seminar. And I just kind of kept away from it for several months just so I wouldn't, you know, be, uh, so I wouldn't have any details sort of spoiled in advance. And um, it's just a, a crazy ride through Michael's uh, experience in the studio and just hearing some of the tidbits about, you know, how each album differed to, to the other and how some things were consistent and some things were not. And, um, and just little, little things like that, that fans never really get to, to hear from anyone else, anybody else, and I really hope it's, that he comes to to Australia, so that you yeah, guys can, I think, can experience it. I think one day for sure that would be cool because there's so much exclusive stuff in there that you just cannot even hear anywhere else, isn't there? Yeah, and um, to be honest, I think is the best way to hear it. You know, I mean, Brad sets up you know amazing sound system that will just literally melt the, the skin off your face <laughs> awesome. so for any michael fan out there who wants to listen to michael's music and um and you know other little clips in that kind of setting and this is the only way to do it i think well of course he has got some upcoming shows if if our listeners head to in the studio with mj.com uh, and if you actually head to the the buy tickets tab at the top, you'll actually see three upcoming shows for 2015. So the first one actually is so the air date for this shows it will begin on uh, the 29th of August 2015, and the the next show actually is tomorrow Sunday in Chicago. Have you got the details there for Chicago? Yeah, so Brad's going to be in Chicago on Sunday August 30th, which is this coming Sunday. Um, so tomorrow, <laughs> um, tickets are still available. Um, so if anyone's in town, I suggest that you drop everything, <laughs> drop everything and go to this. Yeah. That will be at the, uh, the icon pro studios and that's from 12 PM till 7 PM. And then the next show after that is actually a bit closer to where Brad lives. It's uh, in the studio with MJ Orlando. That's yeah. a Saturday, September 5th. 2015.
That'll be in Lodge Studios from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., so another jam-packed day. VIP tickets are still available, and um, again, if you're not doing anything that day, that'll be a really cool thing to go to. So uh, from what I understand, VIP ticket it differs to the regular ticket uh, mm -hmm. in the that you actually get like a light lunch preferred seating. Uh, it starts um, 90 minutes earlier, so it includes a whole other segment, a Neverland segment that the regular tickets don't include. So the VIP tickets would be very much well worth it. For sure. And then the third date that we've got here, it's um, right will be in Las Vegas on Sunday, October 10th. Saturday, October 10th. Saturday, yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. Um, at uh, Sir Studios, SIR Studios, from 12 p.m. to 7 p.m. And all access tickets and VIP tickets are still available. Indeed, awesome. So, yeah, so head to the website in the studio with MJ. Uh, you can actually link to buying tickets direct from that website. So upcoming shows for in the studio with MJ with Brad Sunderberg is August 30 in Chicago. We've got... In the studio, Orlando, so that's September 5, and then Las Vegas, October 10, 2015. Don't miss out, and then hopefully, yeah, next year we'll get the more details of the camp, MJ, that he talked about, and uh, see what other dates he announces around the world. Yeah. How awesome. So, yeah, make sure you, if you definitely are near there or get a chance, drop everything and go, and do not miss these incredible incredible seminars so yeah that's how you can uh, find out about those so dan thanks again we want to just really thank you for the um music that we opened and closed the show with because of course you you put that together for us yeah that's 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 cool thank you um, you're welcome very we love very it. happy to be asked to do it that's okay yeah we love it and we're, we're trying to think of other ways we can use it and awesome. uh stuff like that so yeah many many thanks um yeah, what are we going to ask you to do for season two? Hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how can listeners uh, contact you and where are you on the internet? Yeah, um, best way to get in touch with me is either through Facebook, probably. I've got a Facebook page. Um, it's just my name. Um, my photo will come up. And um, Or on Twitter, at Dan, which is my name backwards. Um and that's pretty much it. You can also go to my website at danvigelobos.com and I've got some music and blog and all things like that. Um, Did you want to there. spell that surname? Sure, it's uh, V-I-L-L-A-L-O-B-O-S. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, because it took me a while to learn how to say it correctly. Vigelobos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very good. Yeah, I've been practicing. <laughs> um, and of course... We are on the mjcaster.com and we're on Facebook as the MJCast. We're on Twitter as the MJCast. We're on Instagram as the MJCast. So much action on Instagram lately. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we're on Tumblr, which is the mjcast.tumblr.com. We're on YouTube, which, of course, you would have heard Jamin talking about what's happening with our YouTube account in uh, episode 14, but we're still there on YouTube where we just did a recent Thug Life video as well, which got a lot of lot of shares and views. Thank you for that. So youtube.com slash plus the MJ cast. And we would love, love, love more than anything to hear your thoughts about the show, 
Either way, the mjcast at iCloud.com. Send us an email there. We love hearing from you, um, feedback and questions about the show. But yeah, the mjcast at iCloud.com is our email and we love getting your mail. So thank you so much for you that have emailed recently. And of course, we are a podcast show. Yes, you can stream us uh, on the website, but you know, subscribe to us on iTunes. So use the Apple Podcast app. Um, or if you've got an Android app, which is all on the website, head to the mjcast.com to see where you can subscribe directly on either uh, Apple or Android. But yes, this is a podcast show. And if you do subscribe, you don't miss anything because when there is a new episode or a new special that we might just drop, um, then it will go straight to your device. That is the uh, benefits of subscribing. You never miss anything and you're always up to date with any of the shows. So, yeah, those links are on our website up in the top right corner, purple and green, I believe the buttons are that Jamin set up. So, yeah, head and subscribe with your device. So today, of course, the air date anyway will be um, August 29, which is uh, International Michael Jackson Day, Michael Jackson's birthday. What will you be doing yourself, Dan? I'm actually going to be in London funnily enough, uh, which is uh, always special for me because I, I always used to sort of go down to London just sort of to see some fans or to meet up with uh, with different people and sort of just talk about Michael or to visit one of Michael's hotels when he was staying here. Um, so that's always special for me. I don't have anything MJ planned, to be honest, but I'll probably just sort of celebrate on my own, listening to to his records and, and just reminiscing on the great great music that he left with us. Maybe you'll walk past somewhere that he was, or you had like a MJ moment anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I actually don't know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be surprised by a friend, a uh, friend of mine, um, a belated birthday present. So I don't know what what the surprise is going to be. Um, but yeah, I'm, I might hopefully walk past somewhere that might remind me of uh, some happy memories, especially some like the Dorchester Hotel or. So the the last time you saw Michael was actually before the This Is It announcements, was it? Yeah. Um, well, I saw him. I went to the conference, and um, oh. you can actually see my head on the uh, This Is It movie. I'm like right at the back of the of the shot. Um, cool. I come towards the front, but you can see me at the like on the top corner of the frame. So yeah, that was the last time that I saw him. Well, I was watching that live when that happened. Of course, that that live stream from that announcement that was crazy yeah but you had other london moments at hotels and stuff as well that's awesome yeah yeah i was pretty lucky I, um between 2005 and um and 2009 went to a couple of his uh couple of his a couple of the hotels that he stayed at in london so it was really cool met, you... up, met up with a lot of fans and you know made new friends so did you go to the world music awards in london i did yeah Get yeah. out! Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have you back on another show. So I really want to talk about that because, oh my god, how yeah, incredible! Yeah. yeah, that was wow. Uh, that was pretty surreal. Um, cool. Yeah. What did you used to do like when you were a young? Were you a young fan? Like, what did you do on Michael's birthday when you were younger? I think I've just always just listened to. I used to just crank crank the music up from my room, you know, and just played it really loud and just probably danced around pretending I was on some video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what I did. 
I remember when I was really little, I used to always re- start rereading his book, Moonwalk, okay. every year. Um, I haven't done that for a long time, but yeah, I used to. Now I'd either go and like to see other fans or watch concerts and do the music thing. But yeah, when I was younger, I used to have like the book, and that was one of the few things I had. So every year I'd reread Moonwalk. Mm-hmm. That's funny. <laughs> my my poor little dog-eared paperback that I used to have back then. <laughs> I've you still got some hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was like the first one of the very first sort of Michael things that I ever got. Mm-hmm. I've got like um, hardcover copies and stuff now. And uh, then, of course, Dancing the Dream came out as well. But, yeah, I remember walking through um, good old Big W and uh, finding a paperback copy of Moonwalk, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was Big W. Yeah. And, yeah, just like flipping out like, what is this? Because, of course, we didn't know anything back then unless you found it and if it was like an official thing. And so, yeah. Yeah pretty cool but yeah so actually yeah today i've got the lunch that i'll be going to so i've got to finish my outfit really i've just got to figure out what tie i'm gonna wear awesome but yeah so indeed so yeah we hope everyone out there has an awesome michael jackson day for his birthday and uh celebrates and you know let us know what when when you hear the show let us know what you guys did on michael's birthday and and next year please if you have a fan event or get together with other people or anything that you're going to be doing to celebrate Michael's birthday next year. And yeah, just let us know and send us a submission when we put the call out and we will be definitely playing them in the show if we can understand it and if it's good to play. So yeah, we'd love more submissions next year, but I hope everyone has an awesome uh, Michael Jackson day. Indeed. hope everyone has an awesome day. Thank you again for having me on the show. It was an absolute pleasure, and yes, I will be getting you back. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool, and Jamin, thank you in Mission Control. Sucks that you weren't on this show. I know you were pretty heartbroken when Skype was misbehaving. So, yeah, thank you in Mission Control. It's been fun having you there in the background sending us direction and stuff. All right, cool. All right, well, everyone, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jamin, and everyone, happy Michael Jackson Day. We hope you enjoy the show. We look forward to hearing your feedback. And uh, Michael on.